Welcome to the Author's Podcast with Lisa Newton. Writing a book is a dream for many people, and in today's society, it has become easier and more important than ever. If you are an expert, speaker, coach, or an authority in your field, having a book is the new business card. It can increase your credibility, enhance your status, and make you the go-to person in your field opening doors and bringing a flood of opportunities straight to you. You can increase your fees and start choosing the clients you really want to work with. The Author's Podcast Show with Lisa Newton is designed to inspire, educate and inform you, both entrepreneur and individual, on how to write a book, as well as writer's tips and strategies on how to actually get that book written. On today's show, you learn more about how to write a book, including writing ideas, marketing, and how to succeed in getting a book written. Here we go with the author's podcast, and here is your host, Lisa Newton. Welcome to another episode of the Authors Podcast. Today, my host is Andre Gidden. A little bit about Andre. After college, which was pre-review A&M University, Andre started working as an artist manager, mostly hip-hop rappers and producers. One of the young men he worked with, Jamie, got a platinum record, knocking pictures off the wall. However, he became disenchanted with the direction of the genre, so took a job hosting gospel radio show 97.1 The Zone in Houston, Texas. He'd been given the morning show as well when his wife became pregnant. She was young and wanted to focus on her career. Even though he had a great job, all he ever wanted was to be a husband and father. So he made her a deal and promised her if she would get the baby here, then he would do the rest. And then here we have it. So... Andre today has written several books and he started writing his latest project in an attempt to solve the most significant problem with life in America, racism. He was frustrated by the people only dealing with the symptoms of racism, things like housing or police brutality, like justice reform. It's all well and good, but it just does not get to the root of the problem. So on the line now, I should have Andre Gidden. Hello. Hi. Thank you very much for being with us, Andre. So let, let's get right into it. So you've written various books, one being Trick Baby, a collection of pain in essay and verse, The Book of Benu Wu, Monkey with a Gun. But the focus we will look at is the latest book you've written called Put It in a Book, A Controversial Solution to Race Relations in America. So if we kind of can start off at the beginning then, so because you have written various books, sort of what started you off with writing? Why did you start? I really started writing as a way to communicate with my mom. She was always so busy. She wouldn't a lot of times have time to sit down and talk to us. And so she would always write us letters. And, you know, while she was at work or while she was at school, she would write us letters. And so that's kind of how we communicated, even though we lived in the same house. Mm. Okay. So first off, my mom was like a very complex person, but I used to be fascinated by the way she would get carried away in books. You know how like women always seem to be dealing with two or three things at one time? It's like you're dealing with one problem, but at the same time you're dealing with a the only time she would ever focus on one thing at a time is when she was reading. And I always thought that that was just a tremendous power to have, you know, to take a person 
and to be able to pull them away from everything that they have going on in their lives, all of their troubles, and pull them into a world that you created. Yes. You know, uh, in a way, it's almost kind of godlike. If you yes. Know, you know, to be able to create an entire world and to bring people into it, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's fascinating to me. Yes, no, I understand. So you know that it's a way to capture people's attention. And um, so you've been writing for a, a long time at a young age. So it, it becomes almost second nature to you, I suppose, in a way. You're good I, at it. Yeah. Well, no, it's not really second nature because I'm dyslexic. So Okay. So writing for me is actually very, very difficult. That's part of the reason that I do it also. It's because it's a hard thing for me to do, but I do it well. And I do it well because it's hard to do. Some people take language for granted. They take the ability to communicate with people and touch them at their soul. They take it for granted. But I kind of look at myself as like the, that little crippled kid that climbs mountains. Mm. My mom taught school, but even my mom didn't know that I was dyslexic. I didn't understand it until my senior year in high school. I just thought that I was a little dumber than everybody else. I made straight A's in school, but I really couldn't read, read. And my 11th grade year, I figured out what was going on. And I started developing techniques to help myself. And now I read voraciously. So what kind of techniques? The way that I figured out that I had a problem is I discovered that if a book was upside down, it was easier to read. <sighs> wow. It was just like a complete fluke. One day I was frustrated because I was trying to read this book and I could only get like a half a page down and I just got mad and I threw the book and it bounced off the wall. And when it landed on the floor, it was upside down and upside down. I could read it. And I remember it's the strangest thing. I remember I ran to my drama coach that next day and I was like, Bruce, man, I, I, I turned this book upside down and I could read it, man. I could, I could read it. And he was looking at me like, what the hell are you talking about? And that's when it clicked in my mind. I remembered that everybody was like me. I was the only one that was like this. What I figured out was it wasn't that I couldn't read. It's that my mind was trying to take in more information at one time than I could handle. And, yeah. I, was, and I was getting overloaded. And mm. so I started playing this game. Like, well, I would turn the book upside down and I would tap and turn and turn the book as I read. And it would force me to just focus on that single word. And once I figured that part out, then I started taking paper and I would cut out slots that could hold seven or eight words because I noticed that as long as it didn't get any more than two or three syllables together, my brain wouldn't do it. It wouldn't start mm -hmm. switching the words and stuff around. So mm -hmm. I would just take that slot and move it along the sentence as I read. And as I practiced like that, the slot got bigger. And mm -hmm. now I can take in almost an entire page just looking at it. Mm. Okay, that's quite fascinating. And I'm glad that you um, shared that with us because many people are put off because they think, oh, I can't do it. But it's really interesting that you found a way, almost diagnosed yourself and come up with the solution as well, which is brilliant. I think these days at school, maybe things like dyslexia are caught a lot sooner than what they used to be because it's now more on the radar. Yeah. You are listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. Please do subscribe to, like and share this channel. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, I am talking to Andre Gidden and he is the author of Put It in a Book, The Controversial Solution to Race Relations in America. So Andre, what made you give your book this title? Why is it controversial? I think the thing that makes it controversial is it's not what people would think the answer is. 
You know, sometimes, you know, because we're so frustrated by all of the violence and the injustice that we see, we get caught up. And I think that sometimes what we want is to see, you know, blood on the streets. We want somebody physically to pay some type of retribution. And that's ridiculous. The answer is actually in unraveling the damage that we've done to ourselves. A lot of times mm. we're not addressing the psychological trauma and we're not addressing the psychological trauma. There was a paper Willie Lynch wrote. He wrote these four pages. It was about Everybody talks about Willie Lynch. They talk, you know, these four pages that he wrote about how you break an African and mm -hmm. how you make a slave. In fact, the title of it was The Making of a Slave. It mm -hmm. was about how you break the African as a man and how you break them as a people. And for two or three hundred years in America, that was the Bible for the dealings with African-Americans. So we've never done anything to erase the damage of Willie Lynch. We've mm -hmm. never done anything to erase it within ourselves, and we've never done anything to erase it in our society. And that's the thing that we need to deal with first. One of the major points of this book is currently we deal with racism as a social issue, but racism really isn't a social issue. Racism is a mental issue that just happens to have social implications. And when we start dealing with this as a mental issue, then we can really start dealing with the problems caused by racism. When black folks in America start looking at these white folks, not as these people in power, because in most instances, the people that are doing the hating actually have no power. In America, mm -hmm. they're just the frustrated, broke white people. The ones who are really prejudiced, the ones with money, they usually have more sense than to be openly prejudiced. So what we have to do is we have to, in our minds, put it in perspective, put all of this in perspective and look at these things correctly so that we can start dealing with them correctly. And why was it called Put It in a Book? For me, that was my motivation. When I was a kid, they used to say, if you want to keep something from a black man, you put it in a book. And because I had such a difficult time reading that to me was going to be one of those ones that you talk about. I'm going to learn to do this, you know, and I wanted it to be like that for my people. I wanted them to see this as a necessary challenge without giving everything away in this book. Of course. The answer is here. Okay. Answer is here. I talked to psychologists. I talked to psychiatrists, police officers, and this is actually a reverse of the therapy I went through myself because I realized within me that even though I had done all of these fabulous things, you know, successful, my wife is off the chain. She's been at the hospital now for 20 years. She's over her board. I have friends who are doctors. We go hunting. Our children were born days apart. We raised them together. Even with all of this, I realized that there was issues in me that I never dealt with. And so when I started talking to my doctor about them, when I realized that all of these biases that I had in, in me and how they affected the different things that I did without me even understanding it. And when I went back, I realized that, hey, man, really, racism has dictated so many steps in my life. And for me, I've been able to navigate and do pretty well. But I was concerned with all of those other people who went through those same things and they're dealing with those same pressures, but they're not able to navigate them. Mm -hmm. You know, all pain is relative, but the way we deal with it also is relative. There are some people in America who are held down by invisible barriers. They mm -hmm. see racism as a thing that is crippling them. 
but it's really not the racism that is crippling them. It's not actually any particular person. It's the way mentally it affects their movement. It's the way it affects their judgment. It's the way they affect their decisions. I've seen people that don't go to job interviews because they feel it's hopeless. Many white folks ain't mm. no job. How do you say that before you even go to a place? But we all are guilty of those things. How do we get past that? Because that's mm. going to be the key to us ending all of this. How do we move past it? Okay, so you said quite a few things there. And I just want to, um, and you was in flow. I didn't want to interrupt you. So I'm sorry. Just- it's good. I, I like it when uh, guests can speak. It's great. But for the listeners out there, Willie Lynch, I believe was a, I think they say was a Jamaican plantation, maybe owner or person. I don't know if he was a fictitious character or oh, if he no. really did exist no. in real life. Oh, yes. No, he, he was very real. He wrote a four page paper on the making of a slave. And it is probably one of the most brutal documents ever written about the dealings or associations between people. Yes, it's a divide and rule philosophy. So you pit the taller slaves against the shorter slaves, the males against the females, the young against the old, the dark skinned against the light skinned. And yeah, and you know, we still do that now. One of the movements that I've been a part of is on the internet. We're trying to stop people from attacking Christianity. Because we see that as a part of that Willie Lynch poisoning, where we should be all coming together and finding solutions to our common problems. Our brothers that feel enlightened are attacking our brothers who are Christians Mm. and not understanding that that's just the continuation of the same thing that we've been doing for 400 years. So, So one of the things you said regarding it being a mental problem and who has the mental problem then? Are you saying that the targets of the racism have the mental problem because they are still unduly influenced? Or are you saying those who the Willie Lynch paper, for example, were written for, the plantation owners, the dominant society, they're the ones that still hold the mental thoughts and opinions? Actually, we both still have a problem. Both of us are still afflicted because it's contagious. Our mental illness is contagious. A person treats you a certain way for a period of time and you get conditioned to the way that you've been treated. So actually it's on both sides. But here's the thing. You need two hands to clap. That old Chinese philosophy about needing two hands to clap. It's the truth. And so if we recognize for ourselves, hey, a lot of this stuff that we're going through is mental illness. You don't have to have a PhD to know at some point a person hating a person for absolutely no reason other than the color of their skin. At some point that becomes a mental illness. You know, you don't even need a PhD to recognize that. But even though there's been like hundreds of papers written on the subject, but when we begin to recognize it like that, if you think about it, who gets mad at the retarded kid running around calling you doo-doo face? You know, when you look at it in scope, that's part of the thing that I urge this book is have a petition where we're petitioning the American Psychiatric Association to add racism to the canon of mental illnesses. Last year, they added male toxicity to the list of mental illnesses. And it's about time that we add racism to the list. If we add racism to the list, do so much in America, change our society. It would do so much to heal our society. Not to mention that insanity is the reason that you can take a person's guns in America. And if racism was a mental illness, then we could remove guns from all of the white supremacists in America. 
So, so if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Andre Gidden. He is the author of Put It in a Book, The Controversial Solution to Race Relations in America. So it's called Put It in a Book because traditionally, um, maybe today, I, I don't know, but it was a saying that if you want to hide something from a black person, you put it in a book because they either don't read or can't read. And that's just the legacy of slavery, whereby if you were exactly. enslaved and you were able to read, you would be killed. So reading, uh, knowledge equals death, penalty, punishment. It's not something you're going to run towards. You were listening to The Authors Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Newton. You can email me, lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And remember, we have The Inner Circle, which is for writers just like you. And you can join us at writerbook.net. Okay, so um, so yes, Andre, so the book is entitled Put It in a Book, The Controversial Solution to Race Relations in America. Would you say that these solutions can be applied to places other than America or is it very specifically American? Well, actually, I think honestly they could. Any place that there's a democracy and a person has a vote, they have a voice. And uh, the thing that I think made it specific to America is America has a unique tradition in our black churches. And there's a lot of strength and power in our black churches that is being ignored right now. Right now, there's like there's such a hatred toward the injustice that I think it's making people turn away from those things that actually did work. Like people are so upset about this legacy of slavery. I think that some attach Christianity to that legacy without acknowledging, you know, all of the work that the black church put into gaining equal rights in America. And not only that, ignoring the strength that they still have. You know, one of the things that the book talks about is there's a trinity in the black churches that's not mentioned. And I'm talking about the black churches have police officers, they have lawyers, and they have the word God. And I think that if, if people combine those things and really utilize the fact that, okay, you have a policeman right here. So what if the police officers in our churches took the time to explain to people their rights, not only explain their rights, explain their responsibilities. What if we as a society just develop a protocol for dealing with the police so that we, everybody understands exactly what it is. You know what your rights are. You know what your responsibilities are. You know if this man do something to violate your rights. What we've also done is have our lawyers explain to you what is the grievance process and what we're going to do to those police officers that violate our rights so that we can start the grievance process and we can go ahead and start determining how we want our neighborhoods policed ourselves. Who would you say this book is for? Would you say it's for those who feel they are the target of racism or would you say it's for the dominant society or is it for everyone? Is it for government? Is it for teachers? Is it for individuals? Who would benefit or gain from reading this book, would you say? I, I think at first everyone would gain. Black people mostly, or should I say, are first because a lot of the things that are ill in our society if we did away with some of the stereotypes and things that hold us down. I think that it would do everybody some good. I think white supremacists, it would do them some good to be put on notice, man, that people can see you. Mm. People can see, you know, there are some white folk that are just 
guilty of taking advantage of the advantage. You know, if there's an advantage that exists, then they take advantage of it. We need to put them in a position where they have to guard themselves against the appearance of racism. See, when we change treating racism as a social issue and changing it as a mental issue, then all of a sudden people will have to guard themselves against the appearance of racism. Because the appearance of racism becomes a mental issue. You know, you can remove a judge for a mental issue. Now, if socially he sees the world differently, and because of that he judges differently, there's nothing that we could do about that. But if his judgment shows evidence of a mental issue, then we're dealing with a completely different case. Mm. You know, in 1959, the United States government, under the direction of the White Eisenhower, the Department of Mental Health, under the direction of Dwight Eisenhower, deemed that the number one threat against America, the number one threat against America was racism. Now, this is the Department of Mental Health deemed that the number one threat against America in 1959 was racism. Now, the important fact in that is not that in 1959, all of those kids that were suffering from racism, they didn't get no help, and now they run the world. I mean, that's like already bad enough. But it's important for us to realize that in 1959, the government already knew that racism was a mental health issue. They were fully aware of it. So what would you say to people, though, who say, well, there's been a black president, as in Barack Obama, and that race relations in America since 1959 has never been better? What would you say to those people? I would say they're delusional. They're delusional. Have you ever heard that analogy about the elephants in the circus? How when they're babies, the trainers, they chain them up with these metal cuffs. So when they get to be older, they can restrain them with the rope. Yeah, just a small rope and literally it it could be tied to a plastic cup. And the elephant, when it's very small, will try and um, escape, will try and run off. And then after a while, it gives up and will never try again. And there was actually a case where a group of elephants were burnt to death because they were chained up. Not chained up, though. Just It might have just literally been a rope. And what they had to do was maybe take a step or two and they would have been able to run from the fire. But they believed that they couldn't and burned to death. So when, when right, they train yeah. from a young age, they learn it. And that's how the people who tame the elephants keep them under control. Right now in America, there are black people being held down. And the saddest part is they don't even have a rope around them. Mm. They don't even have a rope. See, mentally, mentally, because we've never addressed the fact that, hey, these people were sick. They weren't superior. They were sick and they had the guns. And that's all that it was. Mm. Once we address that, then the healing can begin. There are people in this world and I deal with it. I have a cousin, my God, the boy, he is so smart. But the one thing that he cannot jump past is he cannot jump past this racism thing. It holds him down and it dictates every step that he makes. And I know that he's not the only one. All of those kids that are out there that are trying to sell drugs because they think that that's the only way they're ever going to make money in America, that's racism. That's racism beating you before you even get out of the gate. Those kids that are robbing people and all the rest of that and, you know, sticking guns in people's faces, that's racism beating them before they even get out of the gate. Well, something Kanye West said is he said racism is a choice. Would you agree? I do agree that in life, it's like 10% what happens to you, 90% of how you react to it. Mm -hmm. I do agree with that. But 
I think when you're talking about a, a systemic system like this that is self-perpetuating, and there's so many Black people, like, we don't realize that we actually traumatize the next group coming up. One of the things I talk about in this book is how we need to take control of the narrative and what that really means. When you talk about your history, we need to learn to talk about our history as the victors. You know, not talk about what was done to us, talk about what we overcame. Because, see, there's so many people that are traumatized by what happened in slavery. Instead of feeling empowered, like the Jews, the Jews claim the victory of the Holocaust. While they do recognize what they went through, they recognize it from the point of the victor, so that that tragedy becomes strength to them. Well, what we do is we celebrate those things that were done to us. So what it does is it constantly traumatizes us. And there's a difference between being traumatized and being educated. It's like a man that's sitting up looking at the videotape of the killers raping and murdering his wife and daughter. He'll never mentally be able to heal as long as he constantly watches that. And that's what we're doing. There are people who have never been through any type of racism in their life. They've never dealt with anything, but yet they still feel all the strain of racism. They feel all the strain of being black. But there is a saying, you know, in history that you shouldn't forget, otherwise history does repeat itself. There's a quote in the book where I, I talk about the rebranding. You want to remember, but it is the way you remember. It's the way you frame that memory. You want to okay. frame that memory not as the person being persecuted. You want to frame that same memory as the person who was victorious. See, honestly, they want us to feel like we were the ones that lost. But if you think about it, they had all of the guns. They had all of the psychological warfare with all of these tools that they have. We took their word, the Bible, and manipulated them to release their hold on us. Because the truth is, with them having all of the weapons, this could have went on for another 400 years. Mm. Because in some places, they're still having those problems. But we were able to manipulate the minds of enough of them to where we gained enough support with everything that they had, we won. Yes, it was a long battle. Yes, it was a long fight, but we won. And we need to claim that victory. Once we recognize that, no, we are the ones who are victorious in this, we can claim that is the one thing that white people in America do not want. Because, see, all of this stuff that they say is racism and all, it's really all about the land. It's really all about the money. The main people in America that have a problem with black people are the white people that feel disenfranchised. And I don't mean to be disrespectful, but the poor people that live in the trailer parks, those white folks, the ones that live in the rural areas who are watching the American dream being snatched away from them and watching black folks come up, those are the ones who are disenfranchised, who are upset and who are bothered the only problem that we have that we need to figure out how to bring those other brothers into it. You're right. This is the best time that there's ever been for race relations in America. But there are a lot of people that are not reaping the benefits. There are a lot of people that don't realize that this is a great harvest. You were listening to The Authors Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Newton. You can email me, lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And remember, we have the Inner Circle, which is for writers just like you. And you can join us at writerbook.net.
So if you're just tuning in, I am talking to Andre Gidden, and he is the author of Put It In A Book, The Controversial Solution to Race Relations in America. So Andre, what sort of inspired you to write this book? Is it personal experience? Was it something where you just thought, you know what, this has just been going on for too long now. Everyone's doing it all wrong. Like, how did the idea for the book come about? It was a concert, actually. I took my wife and my daughter and a friend of hers to the rodeo. In Houston, there's this huge rodeo every year in February. And in fact, it's time for the rodeo now. And this year at the rodeo, you know, they have like different artists. And so for this particular night, it was like for the African-American night, they had Alicia Keys at the concert. So we went to the show, it was a wonderful show. And leaving out of the concert, this white lady grabbed my arm and she pulled me back like she had some type of right to go in front of me. And I was so offended. Normally, I am a perfect gentleman. I pride myself. The thing that I loved about my wife when I met her is she was one of the first modern women that I met that really allowed me to be a man the way that I was raised to be a man. I was raised to open doors and pull out chairs for women and all of these things. But it was something about this woman. I felt like she felt she had a right to go in front of me mm. or something. And yeah. I was furious to the point my wife had to remind me, Andre, that's a woman. And I told her, I said, well, no, I'm not going to whoop her. I'm going to be her husband if he don't tell his wife to keep her hands off of me. And afterwards, I was so embarrassed at how angry I allowed myself to get. One of my philosophies, I, I believe my whole life, that if a person can control your emotions, then they have control over you. You are a true slave. And, yeah. and I realized in that moment, that I was still a slave because this woman had been able to manipulate the way that I felt. And I was so embarrassed. I began to kind of do therapy on myself. I talked to my psychiatrist about it. I've had a psychiatrist all of my adult life. I just believe every now and then you ought to sit down and talk to somebody with a degree that has no interest in your life. The benefits of that, I think, are tremendous. But I sit down and I talk to my psychiatrist about it. I recognized that I had some problems. And so I started working on some things to help me deal with those feelings. And that's what this book is. This book is the things that some of them that I did for myself, within myself, to help me. Was it therapeutic to write it? Very, very therapeutic. You think very, it would be it, for the reader? You've mentioned traumatizing. Do you think it, it will be therapeutic to read yeah, if, well, if they maybe feel angry or... Actually, that's the, one the of the things that that's one of the things that I mentioned in the very beginning of the book. That's one of the things that bothers me the most. A lot of times people, when they talk about race relations, they only give you information about things that are happening. They only show you what's going wrong or what has happened. No one ever says, what do you do about it? Nobody ever moves towards a solution. I make the reader a promise in the beginning of the book. I only mention a problem in the context of the solution. That's a good point because sometimes, you know, some people are out there and they say, you know what, racism, it's boring. Like, I just don't want to know anymore. It's just, it's boring. We're, we're over it. Come on, you know, and let's just, can we not just put it behind us? And I, I like solutions. I think solutions are good. That's great. Just to round up then, Andre, obviously the book sounds very interesting and we don't want to give it away, but if there was just one takeaway that the listener could have regarding the book, what would be the one main thing that you would say that um, you'd like them to take away? I would like them to take away if there would be one thing. Racism is not a social issue. It's a mental issue. 
And if people understood just that, I think that you take a lot of the anger out of racism when you look at it as a mental issue and not as a social issue. You take a lot of the power away from it. The racists, I think you take away their ability to recruit. Now they can build themselves as rebels. They can build themselves as patriots. Yes. And, and if we properly identified them and as no, you're not a rebel. No, you're not a patriot. No, what you are is a person that has a mental issue. You are delusional. That is what you are. I think that if we begin to label them as their truth late, and it would remove the power from the strain and pressures that black people feel would begin to wane. If you realize you're not dealing with a person that socially is in a position higher than yours, you're dealing with a person that has a mental issue. Mm. I think that for us would go a long way to healing our entire society. I think economically for the psychiatric community, it would mean a windfall. Because really, to be honest, racism is probably the greatest epidemic. If psychiatry is really a thing, racism is the greatest epidemic we've ever ignored. And on that note, listeners, if you want to get hold of a copy of the book, then put it in a book. The Controversial Solution to Race Relations in America is available on Amazon. And Andre... What's the best way, if any listeners are just fascinated by what you've got to say, what's the best way for them to contact you? Without sounding too pompous, the thing I love about writing is I can do it from the, the sanctity of my home. I would rather people not contact me. Everything I have to say about racism, honestly, I said it in the book. It's right there. If there's contact information for me, Facebook, and there's an Instagram page, but in all honesty, I hate social media. <laughs> I have a wonderful, wonderful wife who is way, way, way better than I deserve. And I spend as much time with her and my daughter as I can, in God's honesty. So I would rather people not get in touch with me. Fair enough, I, fair I, enough. So we can look for Andre's book. Andre is spelled A-N-D-R-E. And the surname Gidden is spelled G-I-D-E-N. Andre, thank you very much for being on the Authors Podcast. Hey, I want to thank you too. I had a wonderful time. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Thank you. So listeners, there's quite a few takeaways from this. So you can take any situation that you're in, no matter how bad it might feel, even talking to a therapist, you can take ideas that come to you and actually put them in a book because no doubt if you're going through something at the moment, there are other people out there that are also going through something too, the same thing. And if you've got solutions, these are really good ideas for books. So I hope that's been enlightening and interesting for you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Authors Podcast. My name is Lisa Newton. You have been listening to The Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton, sponsored by Boogles Limited. Tweet the show at Boogles underscore books, spelled B-O-O-G-L-E-Z underscore books. You can also contact your host via the email address lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And if you want to join our authors community, join the inner circle at www.writerbook.net You have just been listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. See you next time.